This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Who is the Suffering Servant? The book of Isaiah is one of the most beloved and well-known prophetic books among both Jews and Christians, but its references to the Suffering Servant have been a source of controversy and scholarship. Today's show, we speak with Dr. Marcus Zender about the book he edited, New Studies in the Book of Isaiah, which contains 12 articles that shed new light on the book of Isaiah, covering a wide array of historical, linguistic, and theological topics. The collection is marked by a broad diversity in approaches and theological background, and is a useful tool especially for scholars, students, and pastors. In his own contribution to this volume, Zender looks at the enigmatic figure of the servant of the Lord. Join us as we take a deeper look into the book of Isaiah and the suffering servant. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Marcus Zender is professor for Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. He grew up in Switzerland and is an ordained minister of the Reformed Church of Switzerland. After the completion of his doctorate, he moved to Jerusalem and then to Boston for postdoctoral studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and at Harvard University. Marcus has a passion to connect the Bible with both personal and societal issues. Marcus, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you. So, Marcus, the book you edited, New Studies in the Book of Isaiah, this is comprised of essays in honor of Halvard Hegelia. Tell us about Hegelia's life and scholarship and how you came to know him. Yeah, um, Hegelia was born in 1944, uh, so he just turned 75, in the southern part of Norway. In his younger days, he wanted to become a pastor in the Mission Covenant Church of Norway, and therefore he began studying at that denomination's theological school, which was at that located in Oslo. The school later moved to Kristiansand in the far south of Norway, and that's where I met uh, Hagelia in 2005, when I first visited the place. For some years after the completion of his studies, he worked as a pastor, but soon it became clear, both to himself and everyone around him, that he was really more into the pursuing of academic studies than to work as a minister. So he took courses at the University of Oslo in Norway and acted as the leader of a newly established correspondence school of his denomination. 
He then went back to pastor work for a couple of years, but finally in 1980, he was called to teach at that seminary. It's called Ansgar Schulen, the Bible seminary and later university college run by the Mission Covenant Church of Norway. He earned his PhD at the University of Uppsala in Sweden in 1994 when he was already 50 years old, which is not so uncommon for that generation in Norway. He was an icebreaker in the sense that he was the first professor with a doctoral degree at Ansgar Skolen. But in fact, his involvement in academic work has been the top priority of his life since 1980, which is almost 40 years now. He has, in all these decades, published seven monographs, one of them dedicated to the book of Isaiah. Two others of his monographs are devoted to the Tel Dan inscription, being the point of reference for any work on this text in the foreseeable future. He has also co-edited five more books, two of those being the collections of papers presented at the first and second international meeting of the Norwegian Summer Academy for Biblical Studies, dealing with the topic of violence in the Bible at the first meeting, and with biblical perspectives on interreligious relations at the second meeting. Since Hagelia and I have been co-organizers of these meetings, we have also worked together as co-editors of the volumes in which the papers presented at the meetings were published. We had a third meeting last summer on the topic of money and the Bible, broadly dealing with questions around social justice, and the papers are in the process of being published right now. In addition, Hagelia has published 16 scholarly articles, of which three are devoted to the book of Isaiah. And he has also been very active for many years in Norwegian Bible translation. Uh, but finally, I would like to ask that Hagelia is not a scholar sitting in the ivory tower of academic life. He has written hundreds of glosses in local and national newspapers in Norway and basically built a mountain resort cabin all by himself. That's impressive. How would you describe Hagelia's contribution to scholarship in Isaiah in particular? As far as Isaiah is concerned, his main contribution is his monograph entitled Coram Deo, Spirituality in the Book of Isaiah, with particular attention to faith in Adonai. The book was published in Sweden in 2001, and is not very well known in the English-speaking world because it was published in Sweden. Uh, the book is a semantic analysis of terms in the fields of sensing, emotion, motion, religious acting, and consummation in all parts of Isaiah, which uh, has a lot of statistic tables of the use of the corresponding terms. So it's a very technical book. In the second part of the book, he looks into the topic of confessions to Adonai by investigating divine epithets, differentiating between divine terms proper, ethical terms, creation terms, royal terms, military terms, anthropological terms, and family terms. 
Hagelia himself thinks that the results of these semantic technical analyses should be elaborated more in terms of their theological implications, more than he himself was able to do in the book. Um, he maintains that it is also in its current shape, however, um, quite helpful in understanding the spirituality of Isaiah. And that more generally, spirituality is a somewhat underestimated topic within the field of biblical studies. So that's his book, Coram Deo. And then the three articles that I mentioned previously. Um, one is on Isaiah 19, 16 to 25, entitled A Crescendo of Universalism. In my view, a very important contribution to this important passage, one which I have interacted at quite some length in my own work on biblical views on interreligious relations in the future. The second of his uh, studies on Isaiah is on Isaiah 25, 6 to 8, addressing the question whether this passage describes a covenant meal. And finally, he has published an article on Isaiah 35 and describes that chapter as a bridge between Proto and Deutero Isaiah. Tell us now about some of the contributors. Are all of these former students or associates of Hegelia? Um, all the 12 contributors are colleagues of Hagelia, so now students of him. Um, some of them from Norway and the Scandinavian world more broadly, others from the UK and the US. Best known in this are probably Alan Millard, Terence Fretheim and David Firth. Uh, Hagelia has built an impressive personal scholarly network over the last decades, especially related to his regular attendances at the SBL annual meetings and the meetings of the Society of, for Old Testament Study. So that for me, it was not difficult to tap into this pool to find eminent scholars who were willing to contribute to the planned Festschrift when I was asked by Ansgarsbund to organize it. However, none of the contributors is an Isaiah scholar in the narrow sense of the term. Uh, I discovered that this was not a real problem because they have prophetic literature as their primary area of expertise, and also because the special interests of some of the others may be fruitful to shed new light on a book like Isaiah from various perspectives. I would add as it, that as in all fields of biblical study, there is no monopoly as far as previous expertise or agreement with a specific set of questions or methods to analyze a biblical book is concerned. For example, I found Alan Millard's focus on the historical angle really worthwhile applying also to Isaiah, even if this perspective has nothing specifically Isaianic to it. The same, to mention another example, goes for Magna Cartwright's investigation of the topic of seeing God mentioned in Isaiah 6, which he very helpfully addresses using his expertise in Second Temple Judaism, and so on. 
I think that for many Knut Holter's study on how Isaiah is read in African contexts will also be an interesting example of how postmodern contextualizing biblical studies uh, look like. In the end, when the fest shift took shape, I became, it became an anthology, which is not a textbook for courses on core topics of Isaianic studies, but rather a fresh and sometimes refreshing flash of flashlights on some select aspects of the book of Isaiah and its interpretation, which are for the most part not given much attention, but which are nevertheless helpful and important to understand the book. Marcus, how about giving us a brief summary of one of the contributions aside from yours? Sure. Uh, I would like to choose Terence Fretheim's brief study on Isaiah 5, 1-7, the so-called Song of the Vineyard. Fretheim classifies the passage as a juridical parable written by Isaiah himself in the latter part of the 8th century BC. Fretheim's contention is that the song in its entirety is a love song and one that is not ironic but rather a song of a loving God who is truly emotionally involved and therefore saddened and hurt by the fact that his love does not find the response, response hoped for. The two main theological points that flow from this analysis. God's subsequent judgment is fully justified and in no way random because his love for his it is only because God loves that he chooses to judge. And importantly, his judgment is there to mediate the consequences of sin. This is related to the observation that God's love does not end with the negative response given by the Israelites. Israel is still, Israel is still called God's delight at the end of the passage. The second point is God's self-limitation in the interest of a general relationship. God does not force the people to act as he wishes. On a personal note, I think it does not need further explanation if one points out that this insight has huge theological consequences in many areas, ranging from concepts of inspiration, God's steering of history, especially the question of evil and suffering. Clearly, the latter is exactly part of the consequences of God's self-limitation. However, Fretheim himself does not draw out the lines into the realm of a broader biblical systematic contextualization and assessment, which is in a way a pity, but understandable in the sense that it is not forbidden to restrict, restrict oneself to the exegetical analysis of a specific passage. Now, turning to your contribution, which is on the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, you make connections between this figure and other salvific figures in the Hebrew Bible. Tell us about some of the connections between the servant and the figure of the Davidic Messiah. Uh, yes. Um, however, I will need to make two preliminary observations at the outset before going into any details here. First, I would like to point to the fact that the figures of the servant of the Lord and the Davidic Messiah were identified with one another repeatedly in the Second Temple period. Examples are the Septuagint rendering of Isaiah 53, 
Sirach 48.10, the parables of Enoch, the interpretation of the servant of Isaiah 53 in 1st Ku Isaiah, then the renderings of Isaiah 42.1 and 52.13 in Targum Yonatan, and of course the New Testament. On the other hand, there is a certain lack of precision concerning the concept of a Davidic Messiah and the continuing debate about this. However, while precision is elusive here, as far as I can tell, it seems nevertheless clear that some texts in the Old Testament can be easily and straightforwardly connected to a traditional broad concept of a Davidic Messiah, namely all those texts that speak about a future messianic figure somehow related to the house of David. So these were my preliminary observations. Uh, now let's have a look at some of the specific connections between the servant of the Lord and the Davidic Messiah. And here I have a whole list of almost 20 points in my article. I will just mention some of them. Um, the noun servant is used for both figures. Both figures are elected by Adonai. Both are called shoot. Both are described with the metaphor of the shepherd. Both are quali qualified as just. Both are qualified as humble. Both are qualified as wise or successful. There is a close connection with the concept of berit covenant. In both cases, they establish or re-establish a covenant between God and his people. Both are said to be a light for others. Both are said to be endowed permanently with the Spirit of the Lord. In both cases, the endowment with the Spirit leads to the administration of justice. Both are ascribed a ministry that is marked by salvation or the preaching of salvation. Both are ascribed a ministry that is described in terms of the gathering and restoration of the people of God. The ministry of both figures has a worldwide range. In both cases, it is mentioned that foreign kings will show reverence to them. Both are said to have a portion with the great, using the rare combination of chalak portion and jalal booty. In both cases, suffering is part of their vocation. In both cases, royal and priestly elements are combined. And in both cases, we find a combination of individual and collective reference. So as you can see, the list contains elements that are in no way exclusive to the two figures, like the use of the term servant or the topic of election but also, on the other hand, elements that are hardly found anywhere else outside of these two traditions, like the profile of the ministry being based on a permanent gift of the Spirit and related to salvation more generally, and the growing of the people more specifically. With respect to these elements, there is overlap only with the one like a son of man in Daniel 7, and interestingly, with descriptions of Adonai's own work. 
in sum, I think that the fact that there are such a large number of shared elements, together especially with the observation that some of them are either exclusive or almost exclusive to these two traditions, can be best explained by the conclusion that there is some kind of identity between the servant of the Lord and the Davidic Messiah, in the sense that the two traditions ultimately point to the same figure, but stress different aspects of that figure. This is not to say that the authors standing behind the respective texts were necessarily aware of this identical reference. You also develop connections between the servant and Moses. Tell us about those. Sure. These connections are much less tight than the connections between the servant of the Lord and the Davidic Messiah. But there are still some that are noteworthy and, interestingly, more numerous ones than with one any other one figure. So here is a list of, again, approximately 12 plus items. The first one, as in the case of the Davidic Messiah, it is the shared use of the term Eved Adonai, servant of the Lord. Again, as in the case of the Davidic Messiah, we find the topic of election. Further, we have the objection to the call, something that is also found with Jeremiah, but not frequently outside of these traditions. In both cases, we find the motive of the equipment with a mouth and tongue by Adonai to be able to fulfill the task. Then we have the shared characterization of the two figures as humble. And then again, as with the Davidic Messiah, we find the shared motive of the permanent gift of the spirit. Both figures are said to administer mishpat and Torah, justice and instruction. Then again, as with the Davidic Messiah, there is a close relationship to the concept of berit, covenant which is important for both figures. The next one, both Moses and the servant of the Lord are connected to an exodus. Moses to the first and the servant of the Lord to the second. Both figures have a ministry of intercession. And in both cases, this intercession may even turn into a substitutionary engagement. Both Moses and the servant of the Lord, like the Davidic Messiah, are not merely described in terms of an individual, but also have a collective role as representatives and models of the people of God. Then we have the shared motive of a hidden grave. And finally, I would like to mention that there is a combination of royal, priestly and prophetic traits that is characteristic of both figures. So this was the list. Now, as in the case of the connections between the servant of the Lord and the Davidic Messiah, it is not so much isolated points of overlap that make the case for a connection between the servant of the Lord and Moses, but the tight net of such points of overlap that are in some cases not shared with other biblical figures. Of course, as opposed to the connection between the servant of the Lord and the Davidic Messiah, there can be no talk of Moses and the servant of the Lord being identical. But what seems to emerge, in my view, is that the ministry of the servant of the Lord is partly formed on the basis of the model of the ministry of Moses, 
and that the expected new Moses may be no other than the servant of the Lord. Would you give us a summary of your conclusions? The six points that I would like to mention. The first one, the servant of the Lord is described mostly but not exclusively in terms of an individual. Second one, there is a close connection between the servant songs and the broader literary context in which they are embedded, that is Isaiah 40 to 55. The songs cannot be detached from this context. On the other hand, the servant of the servant songs is likely not identical with the servant Israel in the passages outside the songs in Isaiah 40 to 55. However, the two servants are modeled with a view to one another. As far as the rest of the book of Isaiah is concerned, connections are especially strong between the servant songs and Isaiah 11. This chapter may well have functioned as a sort of pretext for the servant songs. Third point, the two points just adduced find their common denominator in the following observation. The servant of the servant songs is not identical with the people of Israel, but this does not completely exclude a collective interpretation of the figure. However, such an interpretation is only an additional layer that supplements a predominantly individualistic picture. Fourth, regarding the relationship with individual figures, the most important finding is that there is no exclusive relationship, but a complex web of connections with the plurality of salvific figures like Moses, the Davidic Messiah, Jeremiah, Cyrus, the Danielic son of man, and indeed others. Fifth, it can also be seen that there are two salvific figures with whom the servant of the Lord is most tightly connected. First among them is the Davidic Messiah, as we have seen. An observation with important implications also for broader issues concerning the interpretation of the book of Isaiah, because many of the relevant connecting texts on the side of the tradition concerning a Davidic Messiah are found in the first part of the book of Isaiah, especially as just mentioned in chapter 11. Along these lines, it is also worth mentioning that the overlap with another Silvivic figure, Cyrus, is a matter of inner, biblic, inner Isaianic connections as well. The second most important connection is the one between the servant of the Lord and Moses, as we have also seen. The connections with these two figures seem strong enough to allow for a description of the servant both as a messianic figure and as a figure that matches expectations of a future prophet like Moses. And finally, sixth, it is also important to know that some of the overlap between the servant of the Lord and the Davidic Messiah is also shared with the Danielic son of man. This helps explain why the Davidic Messiah and the son of David and the servant of the Lord could be identified with each other in the New Testament, and, against this background, understood as referring to one and the same individual, Jesus. This identification, then, is not the result of bold exegetical randomness of the New Testament authors, but is well prepared in the Hebrew Bible itself. So, Marcus, what else are you working on these days? 
Well, yes, the first project is the continuation of this article on the Servant of the Lord. This, was, this article was the second piece of a triad on messianic expectations in the Hebrew Bible more broadly, where I pursue two main goals. One is to show that the identification of the Son of Man, the Davidic Messiah, and the Servant of the Lord that we find in the New Testament applied to Jesus has a strong basis in the Hebrew Bible itself. And the second is to demonstrate that both the Son of Man and the Davidic Messiah can be said to be ascribed divine status in the Hebrew Bible, which has two consequences. A nuancing of the Old Testament concept of monotheism in terms of a more flexible understanding of this concept and a better biblical argument for the divinity of Jesus. What is still lacking and what I'm working on is the aspect of the divine status of the Davidic Messiah. So that is the first uh, project. The second one, which uh, at this moment is uh, on the top of the list, is a monograph on the use of the Bible in the migration debate. I will be working on this during the fall. The goal here is to show that we need to overcome what I see as a simplistic reduction of the debate by exclusively focusing on biblical passages like Leviticus 19:33 to 34, where it says that there shall be one law for you and the sojourner and that you must love the sojourner as yourself. So instead of focusing on isolated passages, we need to recognize the complexity of the vast biblical material related to issues of migration. Furthermore, I want to point out the important and sometimes crucial differences between the current situation and the circumstances reflected in the biblical texts, which will better guard us against the temptation to make quick transfers from the Bible to current migration issues. And lastly, I'm involved in research groups that deal with issues of critical Pentateuchal studies, investigating the relationship between the major biblical law collections and trying to get further insight into the function of these collections in ancient Israel. Marcus, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and to tell us more about new studies in the book of Isaiah. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. All the best. All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.